Shalom Aleichem, Erev Tov, Chanukah Sameach. Thank you everyone for being patient with me last week. I was under the weather, and Baruch Hashem, I'm back to myself. So, We are studying about Rabbi Eliezer ben Hulkanos. Hulkanos. Rabbi Eliezer, as much as the amazing things that we said about him the last few weeks were true, I left off with you last time that his life is not always going to remain so positive. And tonight and tomorrow night, Bezat Hashem, we're going to be dedicating all of Kola to the study of the life of Rabbi Lezer ben Hukunos. Likely, it won't be the end of it. We'll probably even go into next week. Too much of what is Judaism today is built on this story. Rabbi Eliezer is not just a regular person. This generation is not just a regular generation. The struggles that exist in this generation likely are the same struggles that we are struggling with in our world today. There are very many parallels. And I promise you one thing, and that is that you will be very upset by the story. So you will not be happy with the stories about Rabbi Eliezer and Hukunus that we are going to learn. And that's exactly the point. You don't always have to be happy. You don't always have to be comfortable. You could sometimes just be uncomfortable. And this story is going to accomplish Bezrat Hashem exactly that. Hanukkah, yes, of course. Uh, Not if it's about uh, what Hanukkah is really about, then yes. So I am in that PDF on page 94. We had just left off. We had just left off that Rabbi Eliezer ends up marrying Ima Shalom, the sister of Rabban Gamliel. So he doesn't just make it from farmer to rabbi, he makes it from farmer to rabbi, who literally marries royalty and finds himself at the mantle, the helm of leading the Jewish people forward. This is not just another rabbi. It's very important that we understand. He's not just another chacham. And here's where things get complicated. Because when you're not just another chacham, it means that you are a somebody. And when you are a somebody, there's a lot of room for other buddies to not love that you are a somebody. And let's see how this plays out. Rabbi Eliezer, Haya Adam takif me'od be'ofiyo. Rabbi Eliezer was a very strict, stern personality by nature. He was the kind of person who never budged from the stances which he held. This was one of his overarching character traits. The source that the author of this encyclopedia gives for that is Masechet Tanit, page 25b. I want to read to you exactly the way that our rabbis refer to Rabbi Eliezer, the leader of that generation. So if you go to 25b, you go to Ta'anit, so click Savaria, then click Talmud. When you get to Talmud, you want to then click uh, Ta'anit, very good. And then Ta'anit, you want to look at the drop-down arrow at the top and select 25b. Once you are in 25b, you then want to look for subsection 4. Tanura Banan, our rabbis taught. There's a story about Rabbi Eliezer. Shegazar shelosh esrei ta'aniyot ala tzibur velo yardu geshamim. That he saw that there was no rain falling, and what do you do when there's no rain? You fast. I lived in Eretz Israel in times where people fasted from rain. 
There's no rain? You fast. He made 13 public fast days and the rain still didn't come. At the end of the last fast, the community began to leave the Bera Knesset. Why are they even in the Bera Knesset? Why are they there in the Bera Knesset? The Tzom itself is about learning and praying and crying and praying and learning. Too fast on its own is not a thing. So for someone to say, I'm going to fast on this fast day and I'm going to lay in bed and I'm going to watch movies the whole day. You, you, very nice for you, you're punishing yourself by not eating, but you didn't fast. Fasting by not eating or drinking is the physical way in which we bring ourselves to the mindset that we're supposed to be in in a fast day. A day of teshuvah, a day of introspection, a day of trying to fix our problems. If there's no rain, likely it's our fault. What do we need to fix as an individual, as a community, as a nation, as a world? Those are conversations. Where do you have those conversations? Not in your bed with Netflix. You have those conversations in the bed of Midrash. You don't leave the bed of Knesset during a fast day. What you do here in Yom Kippurim, that from the morning you come and you don't leave till the evening, that's a fast day. If we had the strength, that was what we would do every fast day. But that's not really the strength that we have. And unfortunately, we live in a world in which people have to work on fast days. And it's, I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu that I don't have to work on a fast day. I know many of you do, but I don't have to. I don't know how I would be able to sit in an office dealing with whatever else everyone is dealing on a day where I'm supposed to be thinking about the disaster that is the, the history of Am Yisrael. How do you introspect then? And exactly that. So I'm not telling you now don't fast and just think. But that's why everyone is in the Bera Knesset. Now what happens? They begin to leave. It's time for the fast end. On their way out, Rabbi Eliezer turns to them. Let's just put it this way. Rabbi Eliezer is not a Hasidic Rebbe. Okay, they have to accept this. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to them. I'm changing. He tells them, did they prepare graves for themselves? Everyone leaves. He says, got a grave? What does that mean? If it doesn't rain, we're all going to die. Did you prepare for death yet? And then what happens... Everybody begins to cry, and it rains. So here you have a story. Rabbi Yezer ben Hokonos is trying to get everyone to pray for rain. It doesn't work. The last time, he says, listen, the guys are not there. They don't have the right covenant here. Let's break them. Let's tell them, hey, you got a grave, because that's where you're going if this doesn't work. And it works. They cry, and it rains. Shuv ma'aseh b'Rabbi Yezer. There's another story about Rabbi Eliezer. This reminds me of a story I heard. I don't know if I can say it on a camera though. Eliezer ben Hukanus. Shuv ma'aseh b'Rabbi Eliezer. Shirad ifnei ha-teva. That he descended to the teva. What does it mean descended to the teva? David HaMelech says in Tehilim, Mima'amakim kerati'cha Adonai. I call out to you from the depths. For that reason, in Jewish synagogues of the Talmud, every chazan stood inside, lower than everybody else. He didn't go up, like you know, in the old Sephardic they went on a platform. The opposite is true. They went down into a, a lower place. That's how you lead the tefillah. That's what the, that's Chachamim. That was their understanding of this halakha. So when he goes down to the teva to lead services, that's the word, yarad. He goes down because literally he went down. And he said, 24 blessings and no 
He recited 24 blessings and he was not answered. Then said, okay, you're done praying for the rain? Come, I'm, I'll do it. And he replaces Rabbi Eliezer. And he says, Our master, our father, our king, we don't have anyone else aside from you. For your sake, have compassion over us. By the way, from here you see that the Avinu Malken was a very powerful prayer. And many attribute this prayer, at least the origins of it, to Rabbi Akiva. Immediately after Rabbi Akiva said the Avinu Malkenu prayer, the rain began. The rabbis began whispering among themselves that Rabbi Akiva, his tefillot were answered by Kadosh Baruch Hu, but his rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer, was not answered. Yet a voice came out of heaven. I have a shiur somewhere. I did a series on Tisha B'Av. Like 10 or 11 different explanations what exactly is a batkol. What is the nature of this voice that comes out of heaven? Maybe at a different time. And it said... It's not because Rabbi Akiva is greater than his rabbi Rabbi Eliezer. And if the Talmud didn't say it, I would never read it. But it's because Rabbi Akiva is more easygoing. He forgives. And Rabbi Eliezer is stricter. And because of that, his tefillot are not answered the way Rabbi Akiva's tefillot are answered. So you see that our Chachamim considered Rabbi Eliezer to be, by his nature, a tough person. And that that even had a negative influence in the way his tefillot were accepted. Though in the first story, that personality is exactly what God is tefillot answered. In the second story, the Rabbi Akiva's approach worked. Which should tell you something, that not every approach works for everyone, every time, and every place. And that's why I've told you so many times that the Agadot of our rabbis are very important. You can't read the story just like a story. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer. There's, there's a lesson, our Chachamim, or many lessons our Chachamim tried to teach us from these two different worldviews. Why one of them was answered in one place and one was not. Is there room for Rabbi Eliezer in the world? Is there room for Rabbi Akiva in the world? When do we harness these personalities and these character traits? If you would take these two paragraphs and study them in the approach of Agadah, you could easily give yourself three or four hours of learning material right now of what to learn from what Chachamim are trying to tell us about this. But unfortunately, that's not why we are gathered here today. This, though, is to back up the statement of the author of this encyclopedia that Rabbi Eliezer was a person that was not as forgiving as Rabbi Akiva, his student. Tchunazo, this character trait, I'm back in the encyclopedia on page 94. Tchunazo, this character trait, brought to Rabbi Eliezer much suffering. Amalam shela Sanhedrin hayaz, the whole purpose of the Sanhedrin reconvening in Yavne. Its whole purpose, was to standardize halakha in one place, one grand court. We've spoken about this before. How do you get Zafaradim and Ashkenazim and Chassidim and Temanim? How do you get everybody to... You have to have a Sanhedrin that can finally decide for us what is a halakha and what is not. So this is exactly what the rabbis are doing in Yavne. They don't want any more breakaways in Am Yisrael. And so if we can appoint a Sanhedrin, the first task of the Sanhedrin will be to unite the people around one approach to halakha. And that's what they were doing. That was their whole job. And to have one custom, one practice for all the people of Israel wherever they were. 
כדי לאחדם לחטיבה אחת, to unite them into one nation. Now this, this really was done not just for religious stability, but also for political and national stability. שיעלו לבוא בעקבות החורבן והתמותה המדינית, after the destruction of the Ben Mikdash, the Jewish people would continue being so scattered and divided, then the Jewish people ultimately would disappear. And the Sanhedrin had to rally everybody together, bring them back, and to unite everyone around one halakha. Now, you shouldn't get triggered here about conformity versus individuality, because the job of the Sanhedrin is to allow people to deliberate in the Sanhedrin. The rabbis deliberate, and they deliberate, and they deliberate, but ultimately they reach a conclusion. And that conclusion is legally binding on everybody, meaning even the members of Sanhedrin. You choose to be part of the Sanhedrin. You agree at a certain point that the decision the Sanhedrin will make ultimately is the right one. Now, you have all experienced this in different ways, especially recently with media and certain big uh, court cases that have been going on in the United States. You always have these key highlighted court cases. And the public already decided what they want in either direction. That's what they want. And if the judge rules in the favor of the public that wants whatever their verdict is, ah, this is the best judge that ever happened to humanity. And if the judge rules against them, ah, oh, this is the worst crook, this is the system, it's rigged, it's messed up. If you would accept the verdict that you like from this judge, then you also have to accept the verdict you don't like from this judge. The whole purpose of having a judge and a court system is ultimately there are certain things that need to be decided in a court of law. You can argue with me how problematic the American legal system, I'm all for it. You don't have to convince me of anything. But it, by nature, by being part of the Sanhedrin, by engaging, you can't only like the court cases that you like and ignore the ones you don't like. You have to accept that all of them are part of a legal system that we accept. The same thing with the Sanhedrin. And part of this is realizing that it's important not just for our religion, but for our stability as a nation. That there shouldn't be thousands of different subgroups of Jews, all of them doing whatever they want, however they want, because ultimately that nation will fall apart, especially after surviving something as catastrophic as the destruction of the Ben Mikdash, which was the one unifier of the different groups. And if we don't even have that, you know, you have the Ben Mikdash. So maybe you have uh, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, you see everyone's talking with everybody. They're seeing each other. They might not agree with each other, but there's a place they're all rallying around. You can imagine, there are parents in the world. And those parents, they, they keep the family together. The siblings that don't always talk with each other, they get everyone together. But then there comes a point where those parents are no longer in the world. And there's nobody to keep everybody together. And that's the same thing with the Ben Mikdash. I always see the Ben Mikdash like a parent. A parent that is keeping everything together. It maybe wasn't perfect, but they were forcing us to engage with each other by being in the same place at the same time, at least on certain days every year. Once you don't have a Ben Mikdash, that's the end. Standing contrary to the will of the Sanhedrin's of the Sanhedrin to, to standardize Judaism. Amad Rabbi Eliezer. Seemingly, Rabbi Eliezer stands opposite him. His whole attitude was, and you can argue, by the way, there are different researchers that have researched this differently, but let's go with it this way. You have here a new Sanhedrin. Essentially, this Sanhedrin is reforming Judaism. Not in a negative way. They have the power of a Bedin Haggadol to standardize Judaism the way that Sanhedrin decides. This is very true, especially when... Now, this might be hard. I'm going to say something that I'm only going to explain later on in the series. When the Sanhedrin deliberates over something, 
is there, tr- is there an objective truth that the Sanhedrin ultimately reaches or doesn't reach? Or is the conclusion of the Sanhedrin, that's the truth of the Sanhedrin? And no matter what you think the objective truth is, there is no really objective truth. The power of law was given to the Sanhedrin, and it is what it is. This conversation has bothered many sages over the years. And I'm going to say that at least the way I understand it among the Rambam and those who followed in that footstep, there really is no objective truth. Not in the way that everything could be true. Not in that way. But the Sanhedrin, whatever they decide, is halakha. It's not there's another halakha aside from theirs. Their halakha is the halakha. And if there's one chacham or two chachamim who don't like that halakha, there's laws in the Torah. What happens to a sage who rebels against the Sanhedrin? It's a pretty tragic end. It was maybe the most ultimate tragic end. And the reason for that is that is the law. There is no other law aside from the law of the Sanhedrin. This is hard. It's hard to accept that there is a, a, a legally binding fact that may not be an objective truth. It's a truth of the Sanhedrin. Rabbi Eliezer is standing there and he says, I understand what you're trying to accomplish. I understand that you're trying to standardize halakha. But what do you want me to do with the traditions that I have in my hands from my rabbi and from his rabbi and from his rabbi and from his rabbi that the halakha is not like what you are deciding here in Yavne? There is a law. That law I received in a tradition. And I am screaming at the top of my lungs that what I believe to be true was taught to me by my rabbi and my great rabbi, the grand rabbi, the, all of the chachamim before me. And now you decided in the Sanhedrin and there is tension here in the Sanhedrin. Because clearly there's a new group of chachamim that are doing things differently. If we have time next week, maybe even tomorrow, we'll talk about the new methodology of the Sanhedrin to start telling people, there's a certain method, it's not always about debate, sometimes it's just about numbers, that bothers Rabbi Eliezer as well, not within the scope of today's conversation. And so Rabbi Eliezer says, I have a tradition, just because you are the Sanhedrin and Yavne, doesn't mean I have to give in to you about what is the halakha. Is Rabbi Eliezer correct, or is he not correct? Correct. So if he doesn't consider them to be a valid Sanhedrin, so he's, he's the Sanhedrin, I mean, he's the right one. The problem with that, no. The problem with that assumption. Okay, but say better than... He clearly signed on to the Sanhedrin. Rebbe Yezel is part of the Sanhedrin. So he, by being part of the Sanhedrin, he accepts the legitimacy of the Sanhedrin. And as such... When he disagrees, I mean, there's a deliberation. You can deliberate all you want. At the end of the day, the law has been decided. You're the minority opinion of the Sanhedrin, but you have to do what the Sanhedrin wants. This is going to be the root of much of what we discuss in the coming days. And so I asked you last time to look into the sugya in Bava Metziah, which I hope some of you did. Even if you didn't, you can do it tonight for tomorrow's shiur. This is going to be much at the, at, at, at the basis of what it is that we're going to be discussing going forward. There was one machloket. Yeah. Regarding purity and impurity. There was the famous oven of the achnai. We're going to talk about what that achnai is in a moment. He had an opinion about this oven and its pure purity status. The Chachamim had a different opinion about the status of this oven. 
they fought about it, and ultimately, even though the Sanhedrin decided what they decided about this oven, Rabbi Eliezer disagreed with the conclusion of the Sanhedrin, and he did not want to back down. Kol chaveraf, all of his friends, uvrosham hanasi, and at the forefront of those friends was the prince, who? Rabban Gamliel Giso. Rabban Gamliel, his brother-in-law. His wife's brother. Ra'u be'emdato zo shal Rabbi Eliezer, sakana la'achdut ha'umah. They saw in the stance of Rabbi Eliezer contradicting the Sanhedrin danger to the status of the Jewish people and the, the, the whole structure of Am Yisrael. The only choice they felt that they had was to excommunicate Rabbi Eliezer from the Sanhedrin. Yeah. From the Jewish people, you could say even that way. Now, we can discuss, and we might later on, how strong was this ban of excommunication? Because you see that even though he's excommunicated, people still communicate with him. They still go to him to ask questions. He's no longer a member of the Sanhedrin. But they still go and consult with him, and he asks them questions, and he still has a yeshiva, which has students. So, in my mind, and I haven't researched this sufficiently, the ban is not exactly the classic. So it was, that's the reason I did say, you picked up on that, Zev. And that it was at least of the Sanhedrin. He was thrown out of the Sanhedrin. And the extent to that of that ban, we can discuss. And maybe I'll have time in the coming week to do some research and present that to you next week. But for right now, this was the approach they had. And I think that there was another reason why they felt the need to ban him. But it's premature to share that. I will share it with Zad Hashem tomorrow. Min hayomahu, from that day. Ve'ad moto, and until the day he died. Yashav lo Rabbi Eliezer boded. Rabbi Eliezer sat alone in his home, excommunicated and lonely, isolated from the rest of the Jewish world. Omnam, but, Talmidim, page 95, Talmidim bodedim ba'elav, kanirei gam It seems that there were individual students that still continued to trickle in to Rabbi Eliezer afterwards. Aval bebet havad, shebiyavdeh lo nishma kolo yoter. But in the Sanhedrin, in the halls of the Sanhedrin, Rabbi Eliezer's voice was silenced for the rest of history. So he did have a voice. We heard his opinions through individual students that came to consult with him. But unfortunately, the voice of Rabbi Eliezer was no longer welcome in the Sanhedrin, which was in Yavne. I know that our nature is to be fighters for the underdog. And we're, there is a part of us that needs to do that. We're going to work through that together. And I'm not telling you not to. But you also have to not forget the part of this that is the Sanhedrin. This is a generation of the destruction of the Ben Mikdash. These rabbis are giving the Jewish people a second chance of remaining autonomous in the land of Israel, though not in Jerusalem, but in the land of Israel, to maintain a Jewish presence with a Sanhedrin, with a prince, with, with a government, with a yeshiva, with an academy. All of these things that Rabbi Eliezer is threatening by his nature meaning by his stance that I can fight the Sanhedrin, he's threatening everything that Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai gave the Jewish people when he made the deal with the Romans, give me Yavne and the sages of Yavne. And it's not that they didn't care to hear Rabbi Eliezer. His voice was welcome in these deliberations. But there came a point where once the matter ceased to be deliberated, and it ultimately was decided on, Rabbi Eliezer still did not agree to conform. And here the rabbis viewed him as a threat to national security. If there's no other way to say that than that, 
and end up excommunicating him. And he lives alone for the rest of his life in Lud, Lod. We said last time, one is Lod and one is Lud. Then that's where he lives for the rest of his life. We're going to spend much of tomorrow analyzing the story in depth. Maybe even we'll start it tonight. I have to see what we're what we can do with this. But there even in Zev the more painful part is who's going to be the one to tell him that we're throwing him out of the Sanhedrin? Who's going to have that speech with him? The rabbis deliberated tremendously about this. And there were rabbis afterwards who were afraid that by throwing him out they were going to harm themselves. His, he was such a great rabbi that disrespecting him in such a way though maybe the right thing to do, would ultimately still not clear them in the eyes of heaven for what they did to him. And this is where I'm going. Okay, so we're studying this originally, like stepping back, from the Mishnah Tovah, where the Rambam's going through the Mishnah of all the different rabbis that Rapport gets to him. He's the guy who's disagreeing with everybody, who's trying to standardize things. How does that chain make sense? You, you see what I mean in the question? Because Rabbi Yezer is one of the five students of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. So he's not the link in the chain. He's not the link. He's a link in the chain. Okay, he's not... Correct, there. correct. If this story would have played out differently, and I'm saying this with all the respect to the four other students, I'm certain that if Rabbi Yezer would have stayed Rabbi Yezer of the Sanhedrin, you likely would have never heard of the other four students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Maybe one more. We'll talk about him next. But... Aside from that, I'm pretty sure he would have overshadowed everybody, like Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai overshadowed everybody. But this was a, a, a most fateful, I, I, you could say error, you could say turn of events, whatever you want to call it, but this changes everything. And so your question is good if there was only one, but there are five. And so five, here's one out of five who clearly leaves the Sanhedrin, and that is going to play its own role. We, we're going to always have this in the Jewish people, of Chachamim who, who are... Either they choose to opt out or they've been opted out, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. And you should know there's a fundamental difference, you have to say, between that generation and, for example, our generation. Today, the word mainstream, I'll borrow it, has no meaning legally. So halachically, there is no meaning to the word mainstream. A lot of rabbis decide to do something. You can have all the rabbis in the world decide to do something. That's still not a Sanhedrin. Here, you're talking about a national, political, yes, a religious body also. But they're not just mainstream because there's so many of them. It's because they are the Sanhedrin. They're the Bedin Hagadol in, in Yavne. This is not a normal status. And so you can't learn from this story applying everything to our generation because it doesn't really work that way. The parallels are not perfect. Yes. What exactly did he do that was against the system? You know, I feel the right thing for us to do is to read the story in the Talmud itself. Let's look at that story in the Talmud tonight. I still want you to read it on your own after Shul tonight because we're going to discuss it in depth tomorrow night. 
But for now, let's do this. Why, why wait? Let's just do the story inside of the Talmud. So you're going to take out Sepharia again. And uh, you're going to open up to Bava Metziah 59b. But let's start at 59a, the last paragraph on 59a. I will tell you, this is one of my most difficult, if there was going to be a section of the Talmud that I struggle with the most, here you have it. So it says the following, Tanan Hatam. We learned there in the Mishnah Masechet Kelim, this is picking up in the middle of a conversation that is not so relevant to us because the, the matter of legal dispute is really not the point of this conversation. I don't think either of you are going to have a strong opinion as to whether the oven is pure or impure and halakha. It's not really what the point of the conversation is. It's how this conversation plays out that is important. If one took an earthenware oven and cut it into segments, and you put sand between each and every segment. Rabbi Eliezer says that this oven is pure, and the rabbis say that it is impure. What's going on here? You have an oven. The oven becomes tameh. You want to be able to keep this oven. Tameh is not a law of kashrut. This is a matter of ritual purity and impurity. As I've told you many times before, even purity and impurity are not the right words to use in this context, but we're going to use them anyways. The Bidya says if you slice up this oven into pieces and you put sand in between the clay, so instead of it just being a clay oven, it's like clay, sand, clay, sand, clay, sand. Now, it still works, this oven, but it's no longer the original oven, and I'm oversimplifying here this this understanding here of Tanawash Lachnai. The rabbis say, no, listen, at the end of the day, it still functions. It's still an oven. So it's still going to be impure. Now we find ourselves on 59b. And this is what we know is called a tanur of an achnai. What is an achnai? Anyone know what achnai means? A snake. It's the oven of a snake. What on earth does it have to do with the snake? My achnai. What does it have to do with the snake? Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shemuel. Rav Yehuda said to him, Shemuel, Shehikifu devarim ke'achna zo v'timuhu. That the rabbis surrounded this oven with their statements, like a snake coiled itself around a person, and they deemed it to be impure. Meaning, it was the way in which the rabbis surrounded this oven with with negative comments that turn it to be impure, that's why it's called the oven of the snake. Tana, we are taught. Be'oto hayom, on that day. Am I skipping a part here? No. 
השיב רבי אליעזר כל תשובות שבעולם ולא קיבלו המנו. רבי אליעזר, while they're discussing this matter, he answered every single one of their proofs. Meaning, he rebutted them on everything. He spent the whole day fighting with them about this oven, proving them to be wrong, and they refused to accept the explanations from him. Amar lehem, Rabbi Yezel turns to them and he says, Im halacha kimoti, if the halacha is like me, charuv ze yochiach, this carob tree will prove that I'm correct. Nekar charuv bimkomo me'ama, the carob tree uprooted itself from its place, 100 amot, some, some say 400 amot. How much is 100 amot? Every amma is 18 inches, a foot and a half. Yeah, make it 400 now. Uh, okay, let's say a huge, the, the tree pops itself out of the ground and flies across the other part. Now, by the way, you can, you can, you don't have to accept this part of the Agadah, literally. And there are reasons why a carob tree, why the, again, if you're going to study this in the realm of Agadah, you would spend time on all the details of the story. Something which we will not be doing. Amrulo, they tell him, We don't prove halachot from carob trees. There's a competition here. Who's going to be the most stubborn Rosh Yeshiva? You know, like, here he just made the tree fly. And you're telling me, ah, they don't learn anything from a carob tree. Chazar v'amar lehem. He came and told them, you know, I got a video yesterday from some guy telling you about this gula of looking at the Hanukkah candles. You look at them and it's one of the greatest gulot. These people that were legally blind looked at the Hanukkah candles and they could see again. And people that were born like this, they looked at that. <laughs> yeah, and he said, and he says, it's already proven and documented as fact. Those were his words. And then he said, and, and. If you want to know how true this is, he said, he will always, yeah, you never know what's a real segula, what's not a real segula. What's the proof? He used the word proof. The proof is that if you've ever tried to just stare at the Hanukkah candles for 30 minutes, something is going to distract you. Your phone is going to ring. Your kids are going to call you. Your spouse is going to want you. And just the fact that the Satan is trying so hard to get you not to look at the Hanukkah candles, that's proof that this is a real segula. I think that this gentleman who's considered to be somebody very famous. I don't know him at all, but they consider him to be very famous. Then they should send him back to yeshiva. If not to yeshiva, send him to a place where they have a dictionary to look up the words proof, the word documented, the words, like certain words you should just analyze what they actually mean. Uh, imagine if I then brought him to some Catholic guy who said, you know, I had a Mother Mary on my toast. I came out of the toaster and the face of Mother Mary was there. And I know that it's a real segula to look at my toast because for 30 minutes I tried to look at it and my phone rang and my wife called me and my kid, and that's a proof that prove things like that, then there's no end to who's going to prove what from... We don't bring proofs from a character. You're going to uproot a character. Tomorrow somebody else is going to say, you can light a fire on Shabbat and watch. The tree is going to move. And, and they're telling him, that's not the way that we learn halachot. Rabbi Eliezer doesn't just do miracles. He spent the whole day trying to convince them halachically. Here he's stepping out for whatever reason. I told you, if we were in an Agadad class, we would do this differently. For some reason he feels the need to step out of the realm of halacha and go into the realm of Making, manipulating nature. He then went and told them, If the halakha is in accordance with me, This amat hamayim, no, I always understood amat hamayim, he's telling here, he's translating English as a river. This stream will prove it. 
There you go. That's why it's a it's a constructed. It's not a stream. It's a it's a something constructed. That's how I understood that it's um, built. It's man-made. It's not a regular. Yeah. yeah. No, it's okay. it's listen, it's uh, for, but, very good. Which is why I was struggling with is is different. Yes. But here there was this day. He says it will prove that I'm right. The water began flowing the other direction. Meaning, the stream turned backwards. They told him, We don't bring any proof from a water flowing backwards. He told him, If Halakha is like me, May the walls of this Bet Midrash prove that I'm right. He too, Kotle Bet Midrash, the walls of the Ben Midrash began to fall down. I mean, they were tilting inwards to collapse. Gar v'hem Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua, he, um, gar, that's a good word, he scolded them. That's a good word. He scolded the walls. Amar lehem im talmidei chachamim menatzchim zezeh ba'alacha. Atem mativchem. If Torah scholars are made to fight each other in halachot, but what are you guys getting involved for? They said there was a guy who goes to his, I told you a story before. He goes to his friend's house for Shabbat lunch. And they didn't realize the husband and wife were in a big fight. They get home, and the husband and wife go to the kitchen, and their voices get raised. Finally, the husband says, yeah, he takes the pot of the chamin, he throws it out the window. And the wife says, yeah, what are you going to do? She takes the plates, she throws all the plates out the window. And the guest says, yeah, he takes the chair, he throws it at the table. But what are you getting involved? That's why I thought we were eating lunch outside. <laughs> What are the walls? here are having a dispute. What are you getting involved in this? What does the wall know about halakha? Just a very superficial understanding here. Walls collapsing. If I were to interpret this in an agadic fashion, the war here is so important, the Rabbi Eliezer is telling you, that it almost makes, if, if I lose this argument here, it's almost not important that this Bet should exist. If you are not willing to accept the truth, then these walls should fall down. There's no reason to have a Ben Midrash. What do you need a Sanhedrin here for? If you're not willing to come to the true conclusion. That's how convinced he is that he's correct. Now what is the water and the carob for another day? So the walls didn't fall all the way down to respect Rabbi Yoshua. And they did not straighten themselves out either. In order to respect the Rebbe Eliezer. And the Chachamim say, And if you would go there today, you would still see that the walls are uh, stuck leaning. They're not, they're not down, they're not up. The walls of the Bidmi Glash are now crooked. <laughs> now here, you know, you're talking about the leaning, the leaning walls. Chida, I love Chida. He printed many of his books in Italy, Leghorn, Italy, mostly in the Vorno. But there was one book of his that he printed, only one, of all the 50-some books that he wrote, he printed in Pisa. Yeah? Uh, one of his books is printed there. And, you know, Sephardic rabbis have a sense of humor. The, wall, the, the book is called Chomat Anach. Anach, instead of Tanach, instead of saying Tanach, Torah and Nevi'im Ketuvim, Anach means Oraita Nevi'im Ketuvim. He just switched it to an Aleph. The reason is very funny. The Anach means it's a commentary on the Tanach. But instead of writing taf, he wrote aleph because chomat anach is like the upright wall, you know, like the, the sturdy, and so when he was in the place with the leaning tower of Pisa, he named his book 
the upright wall. It was a certain, um, and if you didn't understand a rabbinic pun, you probably would never understand why Chida. It's the only book of his that he printed in, in the Pisa. So those walls were, which tells me when I'm reading this again in a Gaelic fashion, that this dispute, we're still suffering from its effects until today. I'm, I'm not sure there's a bit of Midrash somewhere where the walls are leaning sideways, but that this has ramifications that influence us until today. Unresolved. Unresolved. That's the right. That's a good word. Now, Chazar v'amar. So now, what does uh, Rabbi Yezir say? He tells them, Im halacha kimoti, if the halacha is like me, min hashamayim yochichu. Let the heavens decide who is right. Yatsata bat kol v'amar, a bat kol came from, out from heaven and said, why are you getting involved with Rabbi Eliezer? The halakha is like him in every single place. That's what the Bedin Shalmanah says. The, the bat kol comes out of heaven and tells the rabbis of the Sanhedrin in Yavne, Rabbi Eliezer is right. The halakha is like him everywhere. What are you fighting with him for? And now, my friends, is the birth of true rabbinic Jewish chutzpah. And this is the reason why there are so many opponents to the writings of our Chachamim. And unless you can reconcile what Rabbi Yoshua is about to say now with the Judaism that you believe in, you're going to have a very difficult time being a rabbinic Jew. Because we are not fooling anybody and saying we're this type. We are Pharisees, the sons of Pharisees, as the famous Paul once said. We are students of the Chachamim. That's who we are. We are rabbinic Jews. And the rabbinic response to a voice coming out of heaven and telling us how to rule halakha, Amad Rabbi Yoshua Raglava Rabbi Yoshua stands up and he calls out to the heavens and says, Lo vashamayim hi. It says in the book of Devarim that the Torah is not on the other side of the ocean. The Torah is not in heaven. What's the purpose of that pasuk, by the way? The pasuk is telling you, If you're a Chabanik, you will know this pasuk by heart. Right? This Torah is not too difficult to do. You don't have to travel the ocean to go find the Torah. You don't have to go up into heaven. The Torah is right here. It's accessible to everybody. But this is the mission statement of the Torah. Which is ironic that we live in a world in which the Torah is so not accessible to everybody. You don't have access to the Torah. Only, only the heroes of Judaism have access to the Torah. We don't know possibly what the Torah actually means. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu differs. He believes the Torah is accessible to everybody. Rabbi Yoshua is manipulating this pasuk. The Torah is no longer in heaven. What does it mean it's not in the Shamaim anymore? Once the Torah was given on Har Sinai, we no longer care what the divine voice that comes out of heaven is going to tell us. You already wrote in the Torah and Har Sinai in the book of Shemot. That we rule like the majority of the Sanhedrin. Please don't make the mistake. It's not like the majority of the rabbis who live in a certain region in New York. That's not who decides Halakha. Yes? Halakha is decided by the Sanhedrin. The majority of the Sanhedrin decides Halakha. And that's why the Torah says that the majority, you follow them, even if that, that's the direction. Rabbi Natan bumps into Eliyahu Hanavi. This is a very common occurrence in the Talmud, that the rabbis meet Eliyahu Hanavi. So, Rabbi Natan bumps into Eliyahu Hanavi. 
And what does he ask him? What would you ask Leonavi if you meet him? Amar lei ma'avid kucha brichu ma'hu shata. What is Akadosh Baruch Hu doing right now? Out of curiosity, what's going on up there in heaven? What is Akadosh Baruch Hu doing? Amar le kachayich by your life. That's um, in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, it's like chayecha. You know, bechayecha. Like I swear to you, it's a, it's a it's a it's a statement that's meant to carry weight. Vamal. Uh, sorry, Michilan, guys. Kachayich. This is not the right. Kachayich means Akadosh Baruch Hu is smiling. Vamal, and he says, Nitzchuni vanai, Nitzchuni vanai. My sons have defeated me. My sons have defeated me. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is listening to this whole argument. He hears the Batkol come out of heaven. Rabbi Yoshua says, the Torah is not yours anymore. Rabbi Natan bumps into Eliyahu Hanavi and he says, what's HaKadosh Baruch Hu doing? He's smiling and saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Here you find the rabbis defeating HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this story of the Talmud. I'm not sure if I should leave you on a confused note or on a difficult note. It raises a lot of questions in terms of every halakhic decision has world-shaping implications in terms of how. And if Rabbi Eliezer was correct about something so essential, Let me ask you this. If he was overruled, was he really correct? That goes back to what I said earlier, in which is there an objective truth? Or is the truth what the Sanhedrin decides? In, in which we're telling the Bat Kol, hey, but up. Just like the walls shouldn't get involved in the Bidamidlash, Hashem shouldn't get involved in the Midlash either. It's not yours. It's, that's what I told you. This is the epitome of rabbinic chutzpah. This is us telling a Kadosh Baruch Hu, Hey, mix out. This is, not, this is not your Torah anymore. This Torah was given to us. You stay out. It seems almost the opposite. If you were saying, what we were learning earlier about, you know, fasting to pray to the point of tears so we can get rain. Like an ultimate surrender to the will of heaven. I started the story telling you, this is one of my most difficult sections of the entire Torah. I have a lot to say and I'll just share it better. And I hope you'll have patience with me as we go through the details because this story, I will tell you, is one of the, in my mind, the turning points of rabbinic history. This is a, a powerful moment. It's where we're telling Kadosh Baruch Hu, it's our Torah, stay out. And that is not crazy enough on its own. That's what they do to Rabbi on next. I'll read you one more sentence. Yeah. I'm working on, I don't know, something, a topic you don't know very well, but admit I know very well. And I'm trying to give you a proof where you don't follow the proof. I might know the subject more, you might not know it at all, but we're going with the majority rule system here. If I couldn't adequately explain it to everybody, I failed. I mean, the failure is on the really end. That's what I'm saying. It could be. It could be. But you know, there's also a certain... It doesn't matter what the calculator said at the end. Of the I would day. love for it to be right. But he's not the only member of the Sanhedrin. It's not that there's five of him, and there's not just half and half split down the middle. It's literally all of the sages of Israel, and him. Yet he's right. You know, and I'm saying this without that any. That almost makes the Sanhedrin pasul. I mean, if all the Sanhedrin agrees on something, 
Wouldn't that be an indicator of a problem? They don't agree because they don't have brains. They agree because after a day of deliberating on this topic, they've reached a conclusion. They've exhausted all scenarios. There's nothing else to talk about. They didn't all reach a consensus because one great rabbi, if you know the law of the the, the smaller rabbis speak first. Why? So as not to manipulate, if the greater rabbis spoke first, the younger rabbis or the lesser rabbis, however you want to quantify that, they would be intimidated to speak and to argue. So we always listen to the voices of, that, are, that are not so popular first. And then we weigh in on the topic. So people had a chance here to deliberate. After deliberating, they all reached the same conclusion. Rabbi Eliezer disagreed. Right. Shammai and Hillel, it's also a good point. There's also arguments there. But this, this Beradin here is in some way trying to fix the chaos that Shammai and Hillel created. And if you look at it this way, you have here students both of Shammai and Hillel that are finally sitting at the same table trying to come to one halakha again. And there's one man who's standing in their way. And it's Rabbi Leza. Rabbi Leza will not budge. And not only will he not budge, he's going to bring miracles to show you that he's right. And then, one more thing happens. I'll read this to you. Tomorrow we'll continue from the suya. Amu rabbis tell us, Oto hayom, that same day, Heviu kol teharot shetiher Rabbi Eliezer. They brought all of the things that Rabbi Eliezer ruled on that day. That he said that they were tahor, that they were pure. It's hard, I'm sorry. And they burned them in a fire. Is an interesting way to say. Is they all gathered together, they agreed, and they excommunicated him from the Sanhedrin. So once he loses. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu's voice says, Nitzchuni Banai Nitzchuni, the bat call. They take everything he had ruled on that day, they burned it in the fire, they gathered together, and they sent him on his way. The question we're going to deal with tomorrow, before we come back and analyze the story, is the next part of the story. I'll read you the question, and I'll leave you on that note. Amu, they ask him, Mi yelech who is going to go and inform Rabbi that he's been thrown out of the Sanhedrin? Which one of us is going to take the job to go tell him that he's no longer welcome here? The story gets more difficult than it is right now. But I want to summarize for you. There was a legitimate dispute in Halakha between the Chachamim of the Sanhedrin and their colleague Rabbi Eliezer. They deliberated and they deliberated and they deliberated. At the end of the deliberations, they refuse to accept as halachic stance. He tells them, but I'm right. And I say, but we don't agree. He tells them, if I'm right, let the tree move. Let the water turn backwards. Let the walls fall in. I let a voice come out from heaven. All of those things back up Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Yehoshua looks and says, Lo We don't learn halachot from caribs. We don't learn halachot from water. We don't learn halachot from walls of the Bedemidash. We definitely don't learn halachot from HaKadosh Baruch 
And what happens at that moment? Rabbi Natan meets Eliyahu Navi and says, What is Akhtar Shpachu doing? He's smiling at the defeat of his sons over him. The triumph of his sons over him. And then what happens is that the rabbis take all of the things that Rabbi Eliezer had ruled on with the Horim, they burn them. Significance to that. By the way, whenever we talk about burning things, it evokes not so positive emotions. And then, last but not least, they excommunicate him unanimously. And there's not a voice here that says, let's try to keep him. They decide this is the right thing to do. And I don't want to misspeak here, because I don't want to misspeak, but it's relevant to me that we're reading this story in the middle of the parashiyot, where the brothers of Yusef Tzadik also don't want to hear what he has to say. And they also gather Bedin together. And they also get HaKadosh Baruch approval according to the Midrashim, correct? And then, I don't, I'll only tell you one thing, one thing I could say. The brothers of Yosef Tzadik, what do they do after they, what do they, they, they plan to kill him, so in their mind he's dead. What do they do right afterwards? They sit down to break bread. You know, you ever seen these mafiosos in the middle of their dinner, okay, kill him, kill him, kill him, and uh, bring the red wine out, please. They, they don't have any, it's like they go straight from that to their table to play with the kids. Some of them go to church, and then the, it's, it's like there's two, it's complete disconnect. The brothers of Yosef Tzadik, they can eat after they just killed their brother? I told you already in the beginning of Belashit, I don't have answers for most of my questions in Belashit. But I'll tell you here something different. The reaction of our rabbis to this story is nothing like the brothers of Yusuf Tzadik. They, until the day he dies, and including the day he dies, live a miserable life. They're hurt. They are pained. They are devastated. That their colleague, for some of them, their rabbi, is no longer welcome in the Son of Bay. And we're going to spend tomorrow looking through much of what happens after the story, but perhaps the first part of tomorrow, I want to go back into the story and pick out some details and share with you some insights. And then we'll talk about the aftermath of the story, the effects that it had on that generation, and the effects that it ultimately has on our generation. But until then, I wish everybody a Chanukah, Sameach, Bazaar